A lot of copywriters buy courses or write for course creators or have created their own courses as part of their work. And lately, there seems to be a sense that courses may not be as easy to create and sell as they once were. Some course creators have been criticized for low completion rates. Uh, we've heard numbers as low as 4% of people buying courses actually finish the course, or they're criticized for signing up students who shouldn't be in a course in the first place. Our guest for the 255th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Jennifer Dwan Foltz, and she knows a thing or two about creating and selling courses because that's what she does in her business. So I asked her about these challenges and a lot more, but first let me introduce my co-host for today, Christy Sigelski. Christy is a copywriter who specializes in copy that connects, captivates, and converts she is a Think Tank member and host of her own podcast, the Captivate and Convert podcast. I was lucky enough to be featured with Kira as a guest on that podcast. I think if I'm remembering right, it's like episode 29, right in there somewhere. Somewhere and around I, there, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm like one of two male guests that you've had in the, in the run so far. So I, I feel kind of lucky to be included among so many uh, brilliant women. Yeah. Um, but yeah, welcome, Christy. Um, well, thanks, thanks for, for having me. This is exciting. I've never, yeah. I've never been a co-host. Well, and, and now you are. So yeah, yeah, and we can maybe make this permanent if it turns out well. This is this Check. is your audition. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> if you want to know more about Christy, you can see her at christysigelski.com. Of course, subscribe to her podcast, the Captivate and Convert Podcast. And she was actually a guest on our own podcast, episode number two hundred and twenty-six. Uh, about what that's probably five six months ago now so um, yeah really good really good interview about what you've done in your business and how your business has has grown and developed from product marketing to what you do today helping helping people actually connect with their clients so it's, it's a great interview thank you I, I got a lot of um, messages about it and it's funny because I totally felt like I bombed it but hey if somebody got something out of it that's all it's all Definitely. good <laughs> Definitely did not bomb. I'm excited to, to talk about Jennifer's interview here in just a second. But before we get to that, let's mention that this podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to do more in their business. Maybe you've dreamed of stepping on stage or creating a new product or a podcast or a video channel, or maybe you want to build an agency or a product company, or maybe you just want to become the best known copywriter in your niche the person that high paying clients call because your name is the one that everyone in your industry knows. That's the kind of thing that we focus on in the think tank. If you'd like to learn more, visit copywriterthinktank.com. Okay. Now that we've got all of that out of the way, let's start our interview uh, with Jennifer's story and how she became an online course creator and chief executive auntie. So I taught high school science for a total of three years. And during those years and in between those years, I sort of dabbled in freelance digital marketing and photography. Um, but after I became a parent, I started my current business, um, largely because I didn't think I could be both the type of parent and the type of teacher I wanted to be at the same time. Um, and now that my child is in kindergarten and I have met their teacher, I was like, I was right. I don't think I could do this. <laughs> um, and so I started my business and I originally tried to be like a chirpy white mommy blogger, which didn't work for a lot of reasons. <laughs> 
And um, in about two, th and so I did a lot of freelance um, web design, content writing, dabbled in some other, you know, document design type things and didn't really have a clear vision of what I wanted to do besides make a bit of money in a small amount of time. Um, but in 2019, um, I did something called the Year of Asian Reading Challenge, which is hosted on a couple book blogs. And and it was a really good experience for me just as a person and because I thought it would be really hard to find books by Asian and Asian American writers, and it wasn't. The only time I had to sort of break that streak of reading only books by Asian and Asian American writers was when I wanted to read about business. And after, you know, looking and looking and looking, and I did start to find more Asian American business owners, um, but there still weren't a lot of resources out there. So, which, you know, I do what I typically do, which is decided to make my own, um, you know, resources about business from, uh, from one Asian American perspective. And I say from one Asian American perspective, because there's very many different Asian American experiences and mine is just one of them. So that's that's how the that's how the chief executive auntie persona was kind of born. I I took the and I, and I feel like it's not limited to just Asians. Like I feel like every person on earth understands what the well-meaning, kind of nosy, kind of loud truth-telling auntie in their life is like. And so that's kind of where she came from. Nice. <laughs> was was from that from that experience. Okay, cool. So I, I want to ask more about that. But first, like, tell us a little bit more about the Asian reading experience, like some of your favorite books that came out of that in case some of our listeners, you know, would like, you know, be pointed in that direction, because you're right. And we've actually talked about this before in the podcast, you know, especially when it comes to marketing, you know, it's overwhelmingly male, it's overwhelmingly white. Um, there's not a lot we can necessarily do about the history, but there's definitely a lot of things we can do moving forward, you know, getting the right voices. So for those who might be saying, yeah, I actually haven't read a lot of Asian writers. Um, give us a couple of your favorites just, you know, so, so we have a place to start. Yeah. Um, I think I probably have a list on my personal blog somewhere. If I find it, I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, but some of my favorite authors that I found in that time, um, Ken Liu, if you like, uh, science fiction fantasy, um, he writes both, um, in, the, in 2019, I think I read one of his fantasy books, but then I later got um, a book of science fiction short stories that I really liked called The Paper Menagerie. Um, Rebecca Kwong, uh, who also writes, um, she writes fantasy that is based on and informed by the history of 20th century China. Um, and kind of a side note, you know, I didn't learn Asian history, any of it really in school, you know, if anything, it was just even like even World War II, where Asia is like kind of a big deal, yeah. <laughs> you know, just minor detail. Um, you know, I didn't. There wasn't a lot discussed about the Pacific Front besides really the atomic bomb, and in, in, at least in my at least in my schooling experience. And so, like, I learned a lot. What history and culture that I did learn about China and Taiwan has come a lot of times from fiction. Um, and from memoir and because it's not it's not covered in the textbook. So just kind of a, a side note there. Um, there the speaking of memoir, uh, Two Trees Make a Forest, uh, which is a eco memoir kind of about the about the na the nature and heritage of Taiwan, which is where my parents are from. Um, 
I'm kind of blanking a little bit. I'll see if I can find that list okay. to share with you. And if you share that with, well, we can link to that so that people can, you know, can clue in there. So, but I, I appreciate that as somebody, mm-hmm. obviously, I mean, similar school experience, you know, a little bit of discussion in world war two, I did take an Asian history class in college, but that's, you know, it's not taught to everybody. Right. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Okay. So let's go back to then starting um, chief executive auntie, um, how did you get started? You know, what did you, what services did you start offering? How did you find your first clients? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So Auntie doesn't have a, I don't do a lot of services under the Auntie brand. It's really more of a knowledge source. Um, I teach, um, I teach workbooks and sorry, workshops and courses kind of underneath that umbrella. Um, I don't really provide any direct services, but the topics, so I just started talking about business. Um, and again, just using that auntie persona and perspective. Um, pricing is always a topic that got a lot of that got a lot of interest. Um, and I realized, you know, and this is not by any means unique to or exclusive to Asian Americans, but I think it shows up in greater frequency. But just the idea of like, because many of our, if for those of us who are second generation or even first generation immigrants, we typically come from a background of scarcity. I'm one generation removed from pit toilets and no indoor plumbing. And my one side of my family were refugees from the Chinese Civil War. Like we don't come, we come from a place of scarcity. And I think that shows up in how we think about money, even though for me, like I have never been poor in my life but because of because of how my parents grew up and then how they raised us i grew up thinking like oh my gosh money is this magical thing that i have to save and make as much of as possible um and then i and then eventually kind of in the course of running my business i realized you know i could spend a little money to outsource this task or purchase this tool that would save me a lot of time, which I could then turn around and use to go make more money. But if you're stuck in the just save, 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 save mentality, which again is not limited to Asian Americans, but if you're stuck in that, you know, you limit your own growth with that belief. And so, um, and again, none of these things are exclusive to Asian Americans, but these are the things, these are the questions that showed up a lot. Like, Mo, my parents would never pay this much for whatever luxury service you're providing and you know when you when you are trying to survive everything is a luxury besides food and water and shelter and so like senior photography what are you gonna pay five hundred dollars for someone to take pictures of you are you out of your mind and you know you just can't get that out of your head um i've you know we've had a lot of i've had a lot of conversations with people who are like i don't have an english presenting name and so what if clients think I can't write English because they can't pronounce my name. And I'm like, I don't have a great answer for that. (laughs) Um, But these are the things that don't often get talked about, at least, at least in my experience in sort of the online business community. So these are the sorts of things that I wanted to touch on, but also on a more, on a simpler level, just representation really, really matters. I didn't meet some, I didn't meet an Asian American who made their living by writing until probably three or four years ago. So I didn't know what was possible. So I was always trying to be something that I wasn't. Um, and so just just running my business as an Asian American, um, you know, that's that's kind of my main, main motivation for 
trying to be visible, at least have certain parts of my business be very visible um, to sit just to show people, hey, this is possible and this is what it looks like. Um, I think it's not, I think it typically it's not lack of desire or lack of wanting to do to start a business. It's just un, you're, you're not able to imagine that because I mean, you know, you're and I think for a lot of us just with even just the generational gap, like you make money by making things on the internet. <laughs> like, and it's something that our parents could never have imagined. And yeah. so it's just a matter of showing them, hey, this is possible. I like it. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, as you started doing this and, you know, representing your community in this space, how much did it resonate with your community versus, you know, all you know, people of all colors, right? Um, because I what you're talking about actually impacts all of us. And so I'm, I'm just curious, like how that all came together. Yeah, I, I think when I sort of first started embracing the auntie brand, I was a little bit more active in some online spaces that were geared specifically towards Asian Americans. Um, there's a group called Asian Creative Network on Facebook. And then, I don't know, probably sometime, probably sometime last year, I just sort of left that platform completely and focused on just on Instagram, which was a slightly more enjoyable experience for me. Um, and there aren't really groups on Instagram. So it was just kind of like whoever was whoever was discovering my account interacting with me with me. So it kind of diversified a little bit. But I've been I've been rather selective in the clients that I work with. Um, the other business owners that I partner with, um, just people, people that share the same values that I feel safe in my identity with. Um, and so there's a little, I guess there's a little bit of self-selection in there, but, you know, and I, I never claim to say like, I am speaking on behalf of all sure. Asian Americans. Um, but I also don't try to tone down that part anymore um you know i in my welcome email sequence i like i say like if you're not asian american like you are absolutely welcome here but just be aware that this is the perspective that i'm going to be speaking from um and if eventually you decide that it's not for you then that's okay but this is how this is where i'm going to be starting from yeah like that and have you had negative pushback have you had you know people offended by that or you know respond poorly I do have a headline on my chief executive auntie website that says bust through imposter syndrome with the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> and I probably <laughs> some of us some of us mediocre white men maybe don't uh, agree with that so much. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I, I I've had a couple people tell on themselves really. <laughs> nice. And and I mean and. And I don't apologize because I'm like, this isn't for you. It never was for you. And so why are you here? <laughs> no, that totally makes um, sense for sure. And I mean, and of course, anybody who's in on the joke, right? Like, isn't really well, that's the thing. Like, it, right? I think so. if I've made any enemies, I've made way more friends, you know, people see that I, I still get messages about about that headline. And I also have a little gift from the movie Mulan that where the male love interest says, like, let's get down to business. Let's get down to business. And I get so many comments about that gift and about that headline um, from people who are like, OK, yes, she is my person, which is what I want to happen on my website. So, you know, for as many people as I scare away, there's 
even more that are attracted to that. So, right, and I think that's the beauty of leaning into a niche is you know, you, you repel the wrong clients and and attract the right ones. Okay, well, let's talk about the other side of your business too, because not only do you do this, but you are an online course creator and you help uh, course creators, you know, facilitate all this stuff. So tell us about that. Um, you know, what is it that you do with these clients and how do you help them? Yeah. So I create online courses based on a client's area of expertise. Typically my work process is that I will, these are typically people who have already taught this content live in some capacity. So it's a workshop or it's a group program or something like that. And so I will take any recording, slides, handouts, student feedback from those live experiences and convert them into video courses or um, an interactive PDF workbook. Those are kind of the two, um, the two main formats that I work with. And I'm leaning more towards the PDFs a lot lately, mostly because production is easier. <laughs> um, but I also, I also help um, people design group programs. Like if they really want to run something live, like, okay, let's take all your knowledge and organize it into a learning experience um, rather than just like a content dump. Um, so that's what I that's what I do for my for my course clients. Cool. And are there? I'm sure that there are, but um, best practices when it comes to course design and curriculum design. Can you, you share some of those with us? Especially, I'm especially interested because we obviously we do some courses, some group programs, that kind of thing. And so I I want to see first of all how how we've messed up and what we should be doing better. But I know a lot of our listeners too have their own courses or work with clients who are creating courses, and so it can be immensely helpful for them. Yeah, so I think the most important thing to have and the thing I often see missing is a learning objective, which is different than a topic. Um, I think I see I see courses and books that are just kind of dumping all the knowledge that a person has on a certain topic. And that's not unhelpful, but I like to see concrete learning objectives, which often take the form of, okay, after reading this book or taking this course, you will be able to what? Write a sales page, write an email sequence, perform customer research, you know, whatever it is, like having an actual end goal um, versus just here are 17 things you want to know about sales pages. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> but what does it actually look like to write one? Um, and objectives can also be affective. Like if you're, if it's a coaching focused course, like you will feel confident about X, Y, Z, you will feel empowered to do this or that. Um, so just having that concrete objective in there, um, I think is really important. And once you have that, it's a lot easier to pick what to include. I think that's the most common question I get is, what should I put in my course? And I feel like I'm over teaching and I feel like this is overload. But when you have that overarching specific objective, it becomes a lot easier to pick, um, you know, to pick what's in there. Um, another piece that I often see that I actually almost never see is um, some form of assessment. So coming from a teacher background, I love me some quizzes, I love me some projects, but it's important um, because you need your, especially for self-paced things like self-paced video courses or books where you're not there to guide the student, your students need to know if they've actually mastered the skill or the knowledge. Because you can read a book and you can watch a video, but that doesn't mean you've actually learned anything, um, which I 
discovered when I was in the classroom many, many times because I would like do this great fun activity and all the kids are having fun. And then I do a little thing at the end called an exit ticket. And I ask them a question related to the concept they were supposed to be learning. And I get them back and I'm like, okay, I guess we need to look at this again tomorrow. <laughs> like doing an activity is not the same as learning what you're supposed to be learning there. Um, and so having, you know, some sort of self-assessment quiz or a rubric, you know, if you're teaching a skill, how to build a website, like you want to have, you know, standards and a checklist for like, okay, so does your, what do all your links work? Do, you know, do you have this? Do you have that? Like the components of what success looks like. Um, so I think those are the, like two of the big things that are most important that I don't always see in the online course and ebook and other information product world. Uh, so I, I like that. So um, going to the, the first point, you know, talking about the objective, would you also like break it down? So you've got the overall objective for a course or program. Would you also break it down to each module should have its own objectives? Yes. So, yes. so you can, I mean, you could almost break that down in two or three levels to get to the points where you're actually teaching something, right? Yes, exactly. And like when people get overwhelmed by course planning, I say, I say, I tell them start at that big overall objective um, and then just work backwards step by step. Like, okay, I want to have a functional website before I have a functional website. What do I need to have? And then before that, what do I need to have? And before that, what do I need to have? And it really is, um, it, it, it you can really just move backwards that way and kind of figure out and you, figure out way, how to get there. Um, you also need to pick where to start. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that can come from understanding kind of where your students are before they come in. And the reality is you can start anywhere. So you kind of just have to pick like, which, you know, where's your starting point at? What do students need to know before they come in? Cause like if you're teaching math and there's a big difference between like addition, subtraction versus calculus. And if somebody, you know, if, if, you're, if you're teaching calculus, I don't remember all my math courses. If you're teaching calculus and somebody has had pre-calc, that's a very different experience than teaching calculus to someone who's still in algebra, for example. Yeah. Um, so knowing kind of where your students are starting. Um, and I think being clear about that in the sales and marketing piece um, is more important than most people realize. Cause I think everyone's like, I wanna sell this to as many people as possible. But then if somebody comes in, you're teaching calculus, somebody comes in only knowing addition, like they're gonna have a really frustrating experience. Um, they're probably not gonna buy from you again. And, you know, so you wanna, you wanna know where your students are starting. And if you do open it up to a wider audience, like, okay, student who only knows addition, let me give you this little primer on what you need to know to be able to succeed in the calculus level course. So, um, I'd love to see that little primer. <laughs> right. How do you go from addition yes. to calculus? I don't know. I don't remember any of it. So any math teachers out there, help us out. So do you have uh, like a secret or a process for doing that front end research? Or is it just a matter of like, you've got to know your audience. You, you've got to be spending time with them. I mean, it really is very similar to basic customer research. Um, but with the focus on kind of asking not, you know, what their knowledge or their skill level is rather than their you know, feelings and experience, which is what you would do for a sales page or a sales sequence. Um, so, you, you know, I, on, I just ask, sometimes I just ask questions on social media, like, especially Instagram, because they've got the little like sticker poll doodly things, uh, you know, 
I'll ask something about course design or pricing, and it's it's a, it's it's, a, it's an A or B answer, and I see what people what people think is accurate. And then that gives me information on, okay, you know, here's a popular misconception. How can I make sure to address that in, in the course? Um, and that's also a really important piece because if people are coming in, you know, with misconceptions or limiting beliefs, it's going to be a lot harder for them to learn the new thing because they've already got this idea of how this works. Um, and so sometimes you actually have to spend time kind of disassembling the misconception like okay here's why this doesn't work before you get to try this instead because if they don't if they like i already have a way to do this and you know with online courses that somebody has bought they're probably already halfway there like they they want to learn how to do better but it still helps to it's still not a bad idea to kind of address that and fully show like okay you know this is why this does not work and then here's a different way to go instead okay and then I, I want to come back to the assessments and, you know, in a course you would assess before somebody starts and at the end, is that like, yes. so that you can measure the success of exactly, of exactly. Okay. Um, in, in the classroom, we call that pre-assessment and post-assessment. Um, and what's the change, but you know, what's the change throughout the learning experience and you can, you know, you can assess after every module, especially if, especially because if you follow the sort of backwards design process, if they don't get the concepts from module one, they're gonna struggle in module two. And that's just, and that struggle is just gonna keep building and building and building unless you kind of put together, you know, you put kind of checkpoints in there, like, or or homework or something where it's like, okay, before you move on, because everybody's in a hurry and everyone just wants the result right away, but it's like, no, 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 no. You really need to make sure you've got this piece done or, you know, mastered before you go to the next one and again it's up to you as the instructor to give them idea of what does mastery look like you know if you're if you're building a website and you have set up some you know back end thing like this is what it should look like or what it should be able to do and if it doesn't here's how you might go about fixing that and again especially important for self-paced courses because you're not going to be there in person if they get stuck in a jam so you want to have kind of I don't know, I call them like exit ramps, <laughs> you know, like the emergency exit ramps, um, like for trucks, like you know, have, have somewhere, have something to catch them if they like fall off the tracks. Yeah, great idea. Okay, so as I'm thinking that through then as somebody who might want to create a course, um, what, you know, we all know that like online courses have a terrible track record for completion something like four to six percent depending on who you you listen to what are some things that we can be doing in our courses to encourage people to actually do the work because in some ways like adding assessments or adding homework makes it even harder to complete the course as opposed to you know helping somebody get to the end so what are some things we can do to overcome those objections i think you know always reminding them of like what the big picture goal is and what and how how does this little piece here how is that going to get us to the end result um and you know i like to do at the beginning at the beginning of each section or module like okay so last time we talked about this and this time we're going to do this just kind of previewing what each step is going to be um you know gives people you know it, it kind of it helps cut the like Oh my gosh what am i in for you know how long is this going to take like cutting it into bite-sized pieces helps but also putting it into context of like okay last time we did this this time we're going to do this and next time we're going to do this and 
this is how it's all this is what we're all aiming for at the at the very end so just kind of contextualizing that for people um and there's all sorts of like gamification widgets and things like that you that you can add to your course platforms um but you know and also on the front i would say on the front end like maybe being a little bit more targeted in your marketing for the course again i think most people are like yeah you know scoop in as many people as possible um which i mean if sales is your main goal which there's nothing wrong with that like but but if you really want to have that transformative learning experience for as many people as possible um it might make more sense to kind of vet that group of students a little bit better and provide them a way to be like are you ready for this course? You know, are you prepared for this? Again, it's like, I'm not gonna let a second grader into a calculus class because they can't multiply yet. Like they're, they're, that's, that's setting them up for failure, even if they want to pay me money for that class. Don't pay me to teach math, but <laughs> like, I, I think, I really think being a little more selective at the front end can, I think ultimately yield better results at the end because they will have that learning experience. They will get the transformation that they were promised. They'll be willing to do testimonials and case studies and referrals and affiliate programs versus, okay, 2% of people finish this. I can't get any feedback from people. Like, I don't know if anybody likes my course or not. Um, so those are a couple things I think that can, that can help. And yeah. And like, I, I think I said already, like putting it into small chunks, um, like I, I did, I did a group program once and it was like a 90 minute meeting every week. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I, one, it's hard enough to find 90 minutes at a time. Um, and it's, and then, but for me, like by 40 minutes, like my audio processing part of my brain has just kind of stopped and gone home for the day. So. Yeah. I chunking, chunking is great. I love your advice on being really selective though, because I, I feel like that's something that is not talked about and it's not done very often because for the reasons you said, like we want as many people in as possible. It's how we make our money, like doing that and, and adding that selectivity can, I think, make our courses stronger and our results a lot better too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's break in here now and just talk a little bit about some of these things that uh, Jennifer has mentioned so far. So Christy, you're the guest host. I'm going to let you go first. What jumped out at you from this first half of the interview? Well, the first thing that I thought was, I love that she came up with this um, chief executive auntie persona to brand some of her workshops and educational resources. I've seen people do this and I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated by it. I, it feels, it seems like, you know, on the one hand, it, it might be a lot of work in, in terms of creating the content and carrying that voice through. But on the other hand, I can imagine, you know, it would give you maybe the freedom to be a little bit more bold and honest. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I really like the idea of having that uh, alternate character that you can lean into and share in different ways. I, I think in some ways, all of us are a little bit different in our work environment, you know, this ego, the alter ego that we put on for work or, you know, maybe for family, you know, obviously I'm, I think I'm a little different in the people that I talk to at work than in family. So at some level, there's a little bit that, of that going on, but to actually like put on that whole role and say, okay, you know, I'm this, a sassy auntie who's giving you advice in your business 
Uh, and of course she brings the Asian perspective to it. So, it, you know, it's, it's kind of got um, a little bit of that flavor to it as well, I think is really interesting. I, I've certainly seen other people do it, you know, where they're, they're acting, you know, aggressive or, you know, they're, they're putting on a show for their audience, um, you know, as copywriters or, you know, um, whatever the, the role is, but uh, I think, yeah, it's a way to maybe be able to say things in a slightly different way or to talk about things that are uncomfortable in our normal roles that we have. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could see what, what you're, what you're saying. It could maybe seem a little bit contrived if you're trying too hard, but um, yeah, I think maybe it gives you a little bit of courage too. I love it. I love the idea of that. Yeah, I, I do too. I think it's really cool. I also think, and, and I, no, I don't necessarily have a lot of really smart things to add here, but I love that Jennifer is using her stage, you know, her her platform to promote alternative voices and to lean into the community that she's so connected with. Um, you know, being a, an Asian mom and you know having that as part of her background and wanting to help others in that environment, I just, she just I think deserves a ton of credit for doing that. And uh, so, like I said, I, I don't necessarily have like a big learning here other than we all have these kinds of communities that we can help support, help grow and develop. Uh, and if we don't, we can certainly help promote others uh, in what they're trying to do and reaching out to the people that they can help the most. Yeah, agreed. I love that. I also could relate to so much of what Jennifer said about, you know, the struggle of what's an, what's an acceptable amount of money to invest in your business, um, especially for things that aren't, you know, absolutely required. Um, or, you know, is it okay to spend that money at all? Right. I mean, I'm not a child of immigrants, but you know, I grew up pretty poor, you know, we were on welfare a lot of the time. And I know for me, that whole thing has come into play definitely in terms of my mindset around pricing my services. Um, especially in the early days when I was kind of charging more for time versus my expertise or the, you know, what writing copy provides in terms of results. I always felt like I had to keep giving more and more. And, you know, it was kind of like a, you know, because is it acceptable to expect people to pay money to work with me, right? Like thousands of dollars for, for the product that I produce, but I guess maybe it was more specifically, is it acceptable for them to spend the money on me? Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we all have these weird stories that happen, you know, the impact, you know, how we feel about money or especially how we feel about the money that we're able to spend on ourselves versus other people. And I think, you know, getting really clear on um, the, not just like, yes, you have permission to spend, but then being clear on, okay, how much should I be spending? You know, because once you do, once you make that shift, say, okay, I'm going to invest in myself. Obviously you don't want to invest everything. Like, that, that, right. that would be foolish too. And so just being really clear on, okay, you know what, I can take this $200 this month and put it into my, you know, my account that I'm going to use to, you know, pay a coach or, you know, buy a course or, or buy a tool that's going to help me do the thing that I do, you know, that much faster. So um, yeah, I, I really like that too. And I love how honest she was about, it wasn't necessarily her environment, but even like her parents and their uh, beliefs about money and how that impacted her. And I can look back and see the same thing. You know, I can look back and remember my parents arguing over money and, you know, that yeah. makes me a little bit more risk averse, I think, you know, in my approach to money, as opposed to if everybody had been open about, oh yeah, money comes as we need it. And, you know, we're all going to be okay. And that kind of thing. And maybe that would have changed how I approach 
uh, money in my own life. So it, yeah, I think it's really interesting. We all have these stories in our head about it and just knowing how to deal with it or, or figuring out how to deal with it over time helps. Yeah, definitely. I loved, <laughs> I loved that she shared the headline on her homepage smash through imposter syndrome with the confidence of a mediocre white man. I, I was just, I thought, wow, that, that is bold. And I admire it. I'm here for it. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because I've definitely found myself repelled by some of the content that's clearly not geared towards me or people like me. Um, and, you know, it triggers me for a second, but as a copywriter, I'm able to look at it from a different lens and kind of recognize the brilliance in it. So I don't know. I'm just curious what you thought about that. Yeah, well, you're, you're curious because I am that you mediocre white man. Right? So, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And I think anybody that would get hung up over that is sort of missing the point because mm-hmm. everybody shouldn't work with everybody. You know, it's not any different from saying, you know, that I work only with um, you know, uh, let, let's say a, a programmer who's developed a SaaS company, right? Like talking directly to that person, that I want to work with or talking to somebody who, you know, like, like they only want sales pages, right? And I want to write sales pages. Like having that kind of a conversation is perfectly okay. And she's simply saying, look, I'm here to help my community. And there's at least a huge segment of people who aren't part of that. And okay, fine. You want to be on the email list? What, you know, be on the email list, see what I share. But the messaging here is really for the people in the community. And so I, um, you know, we talk about attraction marketing and trying to attract those who, you know, match, but the other side of that is, is repelling those people who don't match. And I think it's perfectly fine to want to work with people who you jive with. Right. And if if you can help them in some way, then push away the ones that you can't help and focus on the people that you can. Absolutely. I love that she doesn't tiptoe around it. Like it really gave me pause to think, well, how, how could I be a little more bold like that? It was really, really good. I thought now, one of the things that Jennifer didn't talk too much about here, but she, she touched on it. And I love that. She said that most of her clients have run group programs before, um, or some kind of live iteration of the course that she's helping them create. And it was kind of a timely topic for me because I have a podcast episode coming out next month um, on online courses versus group programs and why maybe you shouldn't rush to go the online course route to scale your business, at least at first. So um, like I said, she didn't really talk too much about it, but I did like that she kind of interjected a little bit of that information in there. I also love that her perspective on having an objective for your course, like a tangible end result, you know, it's so important because I feel like learning for the sake of learning isn't really going to move you or your business forward. You have to sort of be able to take some kind of action, but I think sometimes that's missing in a lot of the online course stuff out there. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent with that. I think a lot of times we think, okay, uh, I, we, we approach it from whatever our, ba- our background or expertise is, right? So as a copywriter, I'd be thinking, okay, I'm a copywriter. I should create a course on copywriting. Um, and so then I do, you know, it's like, okay, here's what you have to do to, you know, write a headline or, you know, this is what a call to action looks like, or this is what a sales page is, or, you know, here's how you want to think through an email sequence or how you do research and all that stuff. But what's the objective, I think, is the starting point. Uh, and not just 
not just the learning objective, but I know, you know, in the second half of the interview, we talk a little bit more about like the role that, that this course will play in our business. And so we can talk about that in a minute, but, um, you know, knowing that there's this big promise for the person who goes through your course, it's not just, Hey, you know, here's this, uh, everything I know about a particular topic, but here's what you can do with this information in order to become something or to, to have this transformation in your life or in your business or whatever. And being really clear with that learning objective, I think makes it really easy then to build the course around that and to support it. And it makes it really easy to avoid what happens with a lot of courses where you just start dumping all of this stuff in it because more is better. And, you know, yeah. you, you, and it, all of that extra stuff doesn't always help you reach that final learning objective. Yeah. I, I think just having the ability to do something that you couldn't do before is really the key to success with that. For sure. And the last thing that I want to mention from you know this half of the interview is what Jennifer was talking about and being selective in who joins mm. the course. And I know you and I were chatting about this a little bit right before we started recording, but the, the, the thing that I struggle with is, okay, Yes, when I am selling a program or a course, of course, I want as many people as possible in there because that's how you make money, right? You know, yeah. if, if every additional person brings another $500 into your business, then of course you want, you know, a hundred more people or a thousand more people or whatever that is. But um, the result of that is that we get people who aren't a perfect fit. They don't have a great experience. Maybe they don't, um, you know, leave, maybe they don't finish the course or, you know, they, they refund that kind of thing. And so I think if you're really selective upfront, what happens is, yes, you get an initial group that's smaller, but every single person who is in that course or program, coaching, whatever, is a really tight fit. And then they go through, they complete the course, they have a great experience. Now you have case studies, you have testimonies, you have people who are talking about the great experience. And the next time you run it, you find more perfect fit people. And so it feels like maybe you're, you're, you're cutting things down a little bit, but ultimately, if you do it right, it should help with growth with the right people and really helping people reach that transformation, that big idea promise that we were just talking about. Yeah. I, I really thought that was an interesting take because especially because a lot of typical launch copy is focused on, you know, addressing objections and really downplaying the quote unquote excuses that people have for not buying the course. Um, but the way she talks about it, it was like, you know, instead you want to call attention to it. So you only get the people who aren't scared off by the amount of work it's going to be or, or whatever the case may be. So I just, I thought that was really pretty interesting. Yeah. It's definitely something that uh, I think I need to get better at with some of our programs that, you know, Kira and I run something definitely to think about as we help our clients figure out who are their best customers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Okay, so let's go back to our interview with Jennifer and find out what the typical project looks like for her. I'm curious about, like, as a course creator or working with you know, course creators, what does a pro typical project like that look like? You know, when somebody says, hey, I've got an idea for a course, how do you get started with them? What's the timeline, the, you know, the process of, of working together? And uh, how much does it cost? You know, what your, your time is obviously valuable. How much do you charge for that kind of a service? Yeah. So my project minimum is currently $1,750. Um, and that will typically cover getting the basic, and I say basic, but I mean like getting a pretty detailed syllabus of what's going to be in the course, um, 
And if they're going to be doing video, I'll turn that either into an outline or um, just like a script. And if they're doing a workbook, I'll turn that into copy for the workbook. So that minimum is that's kind of where I start with everything. Um, I'm also available to project manage the production piece. So I don't do video editing or document design myself, um, but I can work with whoever, whichever video editor or document designer is contracted to work on the production piece and I can manage that process and do, you know, help if for the PDF, like help them test the interactivity, make sure that's all working properly. Um, if they're doing video, you know, just kind of make sure that the video is cut the way that we want it to. Um, so I can also help with that. I can also help with getting the final product onto whatever course platform or online shop that they're using. Um, so I have a couple different like sort of stages, um, but I always want to start at that first curriculum and content development stage. I don't typically parachute in just for the production piece because I want to be able to have the whole vision for the course from the very beginning. Um, and I'm and not just come in and like, I'm just going to make it look pretty like I want to actually make sure that it's going to be effective. Um, and, you know, I start that by asking a lot of questions about their goals, what assets do they have? Um, first question is like, what, you know, kind of using jobs to be done, like what job is this course going to do for you in your business? Is it your main offer? Is it a downsell? Is it lead gen? Is it um, is it just a passive product, which is also okay, um, you know, a way of kind of multiplying your knowledge, you know, the same 10 questions that you keep getting asked, put it in a book, sell it, that's fine. Um, but that answering that question will really shape just about everything else. Because if it's a downsell, you don't want the content to compete too much with your main offer. Um, and if it's a lead gen tool, then you want to make sure that that leads into some of your other offers. So like that you know, what position the course has in your sort of offer jungle, mine's a jungle, <laughs> your offer ecosystem, um, that's really important to determine first. So, um, yeah. I, so I, I really like that. Um, as I'm thinking about, okay, you know, if I wanted to create a course as a lead magnet versus an actual offer, obviously there's magnitudes difference in, in the content and in, in what you're teaching. So, you know, can we define that a little bit? Like if it's an, if it's a lead magnet, you know, should a course, it feels like it shouldn't be a 20 module course, whatever. It should be something very simple uh, versus, you know, something that might be um, my main offer, which maybe has six or eight modules. Um, could, could you maybe talk about how you would think through that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think if you're creating a course either as a lead magnet or like a lead nurturing almost, like the goal of that would be to prepare that client to purchase one of your other offers. And so maybe they need to go in and audit their existing system, or maybe they need to go in um, yeah, and, and assess their current website, kind of see what's there and what's not. Um, and, and yeah, that should be something that they can do relatively quickly. You don't want this lead magnet to have like a six month, <laughs> you know, to six months before they're ready to work with you. Like give them a quick win, you know, a weekend or a week that they can accomplish something. They can accomplish something significant. Like I have this pet peeve about lead magnets where it's just like, hello, it's just information. You can't actually do anything with it. And like, no, like if it's going to, especially if, especially if it's going to be a paid product, like it cannot just be a paid sales pitch because 
that sucks. Um, you know, you want to give them a win. You want to give, you could, you know, you could give them a plan. You could almost treat it as like a self, like a self scoping type thing. Like, you know, here are the things that I need. You can have like a quiz in there kind of to help them assess where they are. And then they send that to you and you'd look it over and then you kind of have an idea like, okay, you know, which offer is this, which offer is most appropriate for this person. Um, but you can also give them feedback on, okay, you know, here are the points that you saw. Um, you know, here's some of the, here's, here's whatever you created. I'm going to give you some feedback on that. And then also, you know, show you some of, if, if you want to move further, here's what else that we can do together. Um, so you want that lead gen or lead magnet course to still deliver a great deal of value. Um, I see a lot of like, email courses that are just sales sequences, <laughs> mm -hmm. which, you know, nothing wrong with the sales sequence, but please don't call it a course. Okay. In addition to that, other mistakes that course creators are making that, you know, are very obvious as you look at the, the broad range of courses that you see. I think just cramming too much into one course. Um, I know everybody wants to deliver as much value as possible. And there is something to be said for, again, kind of creating some kind of, you know, safety nets for folks who are like, okay, you know, I don't know exactly how to do this little prerequisite skill. Okay, you know, put an extra module in there, but mark it as, mark it as optional. Like, hey, if you are struggling with XYZ, go here. If you're not, then you don't need to watch this video. Like just kind of, even just having some of that signposting, I, I don't see that often enough. Um, giving people guidance, like, do you need to do this? Do you not need to do this? Yeah, but I mean, most of what I see is missing kind of that objective and those assessment pieces. Okay, cool. And then you mentioned that sometimes we want to have a course for passive income. But I also, if I remember right, I saw on your website, you know, that uh, something you had written about how you can't be passive about your passive income. You know, what do you mean by that? Like, how passive is passive income? Is it is I guess the real question here is, is it really passive? Of course not. <laughs> I've been I've heard someone use the phrase residual income, which is like meaning that it's coming in after the work has been done. And I like that better because there's still work like not just not just creating the product to begin with, but nurturing the size of audience that you need. If you're coming in with like a 2% conversion rate, like how many how many people need to how many eyeballs need to get on this before you actually sell one? Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. Um, and yeah, pass, passive income. I hate that phrase. <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. And there's, at least in my experience, there is nothing passive. Like it's as much work after as, as before. So absolutely. Cause you can launch it once and then you're like, great, nobody's buying it anymore. Right. So you're either constantly launching or you're just, or you're, or if you evergreen it, you still have to get it in front of new people. Um, whether that's you going into new rooms or you bringing new people into your, into your sphere or both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, lot, yeah. Lots of, lots of different things that we can do there. Okay. So um, I want to go back to what you were talking about um, money mindset. When we first started talking, you know, some of the things that came from, you know, what your parents, uh, their beliefs around money and how that's instilled in you, I think in all of us at some level, you know, we all um, take on these beliefs from our parents. What did you do to start overcoming that, to start recognizing, oh, there's a story that's not right. And, and how do you change that story? So I've been in therapy for a long time. It's been great. Um, and, but it was in therapy that I learned about the connection between 
our actions, our emotions, and our beliefs. Because I would, I would see myself and I would see other people like, quote a project and then instantly like, actually, never mind, I can do it for like 25% less than that. And I afterwards, I'm like, why the hell did I do that? Um, and but understanding like, okay, I don't just I don't just do stuff. I do stuff because I'm feeling some kind of way. And I'm feeling some kind of way because I believe something about myself or something about the world um, that is causing those feelings and those actions. And so once I was able to realize, okay, let me dig back far enough. What is it that I believe about myself or the world that causes me to act this way? Well, I believe no one would ever pay this much for something. I believe that rejection is unbearable. I believe that you know, there's not enough money and clients and opportunity to go around. And why? And for me, it was like, well, why do I believe that? Well, for my parents, there wasn't when they came to when they came to this country. Like there was scarcity in every, you know, pretty much every aspect of life. But that's not my story. That's not how I grew up. That's not the spot that I find myself in. And so those old beliefs and subsequent emotions and actions, they don't serve me anymore. And so can I, can I rework or rewrite that belief into something that serves me better in the spot that I'm in now? That that's helpful. And obviously it's not just money. There may be other beliefs around, you know, am I, am I qualified for business or I mean, probably dozens of other ways that this manifests in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about other mindset shifts that you've made in, in your business, stepping away from, from money. What other ways have you had to change your thinking to go from school teacher to literally CEO of a, you know, a business where you're helping other people develop, you know, six and seven figure businesses themselves. I think I, you know, like many people who make this transition, I was stuck in the employee mindset for a long time. Um, And certainly in my first sort of freelancing experience before I became a parent, I was very passive. I would just kind of waited for clients and referrals, partly because I had a full-time job, so I didn't need to. But when that was removed, I was like, uh, okay, where's my next project coming from? Um, and I used to be very passive about that. And now I feel a lot more comfortable just going and getting what I want. And, and I have the agency to do that. I don't have to wait for somebody to introduce me or someone to approve of my work. I can just be like, hey, you know, I have this authority and I have this expertise. I can help you with this. And also, and that comes to not just owning the skills and the knowledge, but also owning the process and just being like, if you want to work with me, this is how it goes. And not apologizing for that because because I have found that when I when I go against my own processes, when I try to like water those down, no one's ever happy. Nobody's ever happy. Even if I do it thinking, oh, this will make the client's life easier. It doesn't because, because I'm, I'm there to make the life easier. And so if I make my own life harder, it will make, it will eventually trickle down to them anyway. So um, just, yeah, just kind of owning my, my role in, in what I'm doing. So, and as you've done that, what are the shifts that you've made in your business, uh, almost like physical changes or, you know, that maybe adding products or services or whatever that go along with that, that helped you level up? So actually most of my leveling up has come from cutting out offers. Interesting. Um, 
I like to start things way more than I like finishing them. So prioritizing and follow through are often hard because I'm always really excited. Like, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to go run with it and I'm going to go run with it for a week. And then I, you know, and then I do it and I am, you know, I'm launching like four things a month and people get tired and I'm like, oh, okay, this was too many things. So actually probably I've, the most momentum I've gained from my business is cutting things out. Like I used to do websites and I used to, you know, do not that great of a job like with brand design. And I'm just like, I don't do those things anymore. Um, I'm not that great at them. I don't enjoy them that much. And, and being able to focus on like, okay, I'm good at creating courses and I'm good at teaching. And those are the things that I focus on more. Um, honestly, that's been like the biggest game changer for me. And what do you struggle with? You know, uh, obviously like getting rid of that stuff, that's one struggle, but you know, in your business today, where, where are the big struggles for you? I think it is just the prioritizing and follow through and, and figuring out, you know, cause I want to do everything and realizing which, realizing what is the best and highest use of my time and what isn't. Um, I hired a VA for the first time this year, also realized, whoo, my processes, uh, they work inside my head, but they don't work when I try to tell somebody else how to follow them. Um, so, you know, I think just kind of downloading, because for a long time, my business has lived in my brain, um, which I don't necessarily <laughs> recommend. Um, and so I don't know that it's a struggle, but it's just been a project to like, get some of that out and get, you know, get SOPs written and get systems in place. Um, so that I can bring people in to help me where I need help so that I can do what I do best. Um, and just kind of understanding like what I do best is not, I don't do every, I'm not the best at everything. And so like figuring out what, what to outsource, what to automate and, and being able to get to the point where I can't outsource and automate those things. So it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, almost like an arms race, like, okay, I need to automate. Well, in order to do that, I have to have a system. So like, okay, build the system. Okay, now I wanna outsource. Okay, in order to outsource, I have to have this in place. So I just have to keep stacking it slowly up one on top of another. Yeah, I, I believe me, I, I feel that very, <laughs> very deeply. So, you know, as you think about your business and where it's going in the future, you know, what's the plan for the next couple of years? Uh, you know, as you sort of become this, this mogul and a representative of your community, you know, where's it gonna go? I, I think I would like to, sh so I think I, the majority of my time and income is in the client work bucket. I mean, probably 75 to 80%. And then the other, the other piece is teaching my own group programs. And I'd like to maybe not completely reverse that ratio, but maybe have it closer to 50, 50 or 40, 60, because as a parent, I have very strict guardrails on where I on on how much time I'm working and actually I'm I'm less I find myself less motivated to make more money than I do to spend less time working. <laughs> and so but either way I think for me to scale is to help more people at once than I can um, in one-to-one -one projects. So big picture I would like to shift that ratio, multiply my knowledge the way I the way I do for my clients. So Nice. Okay. So a couple of last questions, you know, you, you brought it up, you, you're a parent, you want to find more time for, you know, le less work, I guess. How do you manage your day in order to make that happen? What does a typical day for you look like? So I theme my days. Um, and that's, that's a really, really helpful strategy for me. So like Monday I will be 
totally heads down in client work. Um, maybe Thursday I will spend on prospecting and marketing and like growing my own growing my business i'll have a day set aside for that i try to batch my calls and meetings like i'll you and usually that's those are on wednesdays which sometimes which probably at least once a month results in like one wednesday where i have four calls in a row <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, but for me, that's worth it because that means the other four days of the week, like totally uninterrupted. I dabble a little bit in time blocking. It's kind of an effective strategy, but it's not like super, it's not like supercharging for me. So sometimes if I feel like I need it, I'm like, okay, let me, let me set aside time for this thing and this thing and this thing. So I do that. I, I use an app called Amazing Marvin to manage my tasks. I've tried Trello and Asana and like a bunch of different project management apps and none of them stuck. But somehow this one works better. I don't know why. Um, it's very customizable, almost to a fault. It was kind of difficult to learn how to use at first, but I was able to pull together just the strategies that work best for me. So time blocking, setting like my, my three most important projects, planning my weeks, um, rewards. I respond very well to gamification <laughs> personally. Um, so just having that in there. Um, but mostly, I mean, theming my days is probably my biggest thing, making sure that, okay, I do set aside time to grow my business and not just plug away on client work, even if client work is my priority for that season, like making sure I still have time to like plan and build and sow seeds for the future. And are you working four hours a day, eight hours a day? Well, you know, I'm um, sure it varies a bit. Yeah, it does vary. Um, and it, after this summer where I've been kind of giving myself some more late starts and early endings, I'm like, I don't hate this. I think I might just keep this a habit. So um, I work about four, four to five hours a day um, between nine, between nine and three uh, when my kid's in school. And, and I mean, the night I, I sometimes wish I had more time to work, but I think it's good for me to have a hard stop like nope i gotta be done at this time because i gotta go get my kid from school and just having and all and having always had that hard stop i think has not not forced me in a bad way but it has forced me to be creative and efficient and uh with my time and thinking like okay what is actually the most important thing because i know i have to stop at this point i don't have the option of working until midnight to you know during launch week or something the downside is i have to plan ahead a lot more which is not always my strongest suit because i'll be like hey i want to do this workshop next week i can't do that because i don't have enough time to prepare so i got to give myself a little more lead time which i'm trying to get better at awesome thank you so much for your time we appreciate thank it thank you for having me this was great so that's the end of our interview with Jennifer Dwan Fultz. Before we go, let's talk about one or two more things that stood out here. And again, Christy, since you're the guest, I'm going to let you go first. What stood out to you in this last part of the interview? Oh my God. So I wanted to high five Jennifer when she made the distinction between passive income and residual income, because, you know, I think there's a lot of shady marketing around teaching people how to create courses for passive income. And to your point, you know, it's, it's a little less work after the fact, you know, everything is created, but you still have to tweak things and update things. You have to launch, you know, if, if, if it's not evergreen, you have to launch constantly. If it is evergreen, you know, you have to get in front of more people. 
um, deal with the onboarding and the backend tech stuff. So there's always work to be done. It's not like you're just sitting there cashing checks. So um, that's what we're sold though. So I, I really loved that she, that she made that distinction. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just uh, courses and, and things like that. You know, I, we see people talking about how you can blog for a living and, you know, once that, that money starts to flow, it just kind of comes in. And uh, unfortunately there's still, you know, SEO and constant updates. Mm. And like, I mean, no matter what you do, there's no such thing as a completely, um, you know, passive uh, work-free type of business. Um, if you have one, it's not going to last for very long because, you know, competition will come in and they'll out hustle you. And suddenly, you know, that, that money will go away. And so I agree. I, I love anybody, anybody who's talking about creating passive income, that's not talking about actually, there's a lot of work that goes into this is selling us a line and uh, we, we can safely ignore them. Run, run. Exactly. <laughs> Going along with that too, I love what Jennifer was talking about knowing the job that your course or program is going to do for you. Um, and, you know, we talked about, you know, are you using it as a lead magnet or using it as, you know, a, a big a cash cow, a money generator in your business, but really understanding that what you're creating when you build a course is an asset. It's a part of your business. It has a role just like any other employee you would have or any other thing that you're doing in your business and really understanding where it fits as a starting point, I think is really good advice. And again, would probably keep a lot of these you know, courses that really shouldn't be a course. Maybe it should be a, a free PDF download or that kind of thing from being created because um, the the role that it plays in the business needs to matter. And if it's if it's not really a big role, then maybe it's it shouldn't be a course. Yeah. Honestly, nothing to add there. I, I agree with all of that. I I loved her, I loved her points about that. And I also <laughs> totally related to when she said something about um like using your lead mag uh, using your a course as a lead magnet and how there's kind of some tricky stuff going on with that. And it's really just a lead magnet. That's it's a sale. It's a sales pitch, not a course. You're not actually teaching um, anybody anything. And I just, I love, I loved her honesty, like throughout this whole interview, like she was just really honest about all of these different, you know, pieces of marketing. And so I really love that there are more people willing to talk about that stuff for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we talked a lot about mindset. We came back to that, you know, money mindset issue. Also, you know, Jennifer shared, you know, overcoming this idea of the employee mindset, which is something, you know, I've been doing my own business now for, you know, almost 10 years where I've been self-employed and I still feel like I need to show up in my chair at eight (laughs) o'clock and work through the day. Like that employee mindset is strong and it is ingrained and, you know, we feel guilty, you know, if we can't step away. And so, you know, just thinking through like, what are these stories we tell ourselves about what work has to look like? Um, What am I allowed to do? Am I allowed to take time off? Those kinds of things. We just need to give ourselves permission to have those conversations with ourselves or, you know, with people who, who love us and, uh, and, and then ignore it, do something different. Definitely. And I, I found her struggle with getting her processes and systems out of her head and out on paper, really relatable. Um, I, you know, that's something that I've struggled with. I've been in business for three years and I'm just getting it done now. I mean, I've done a little bit. I've had, I have a lot more to do. Um, but I think it's hard when you feel already overloaded, like you're, you're stretched thin and how are you going to take the time to put these SOPs together 
you know, in the, in the event that you want to bring somebody on your team, but I guess you just kind of have to keep reminding yourself that it's going to make your life easier in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I really relate when, you know, Jennifer talks about, you know, being really good at the idea and the quick start and, you know, getting started, but then the follow-up drops off. That is so me. And unfortunately <laughs> it's also so Kira. And so, so a lot of, Uh-oh. we have a lot of ideas and a lot of things that we want to get done and then, you know, actually getting them finished. It definitely takes a team uh, to do that, but uh, I so relate. And so again, glad she shared that too, because uh, that, that definitely hits home. Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to that because, you know, you're, we're creative, right. By nature. And so it's easy to just get stuck in that wanting to do something new all the time. And, and maybe sometimes something shouldn't be followed through on, I guess the tough part is like knowing when you should keep going on something and when it's time to throw in the towel. Yeah. Okay. What else? Uh, any last things that stood out to you from this, uh, this half of the interview? Well, just a little bit at the end, I loved hearing how um, Jennifer structures her days just because I'm always trying to sort of play around with that and see, you know, what works best for me, when are my most productive times and sort of, you know, figuring out how to, how to shut everything down at a certain time. So I just think it's really helpful to hear other people's ideas of how they do things, you know? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm the same way. I, I think that's one of the reasons we ask so much because we're very interested in finding like, what is the secret? Like, what's the one thing we can borrow from somebody else that helps me get it right? Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure there really are any secrets, but it's helpful to hear how other people are doing it because then you can try different things. You know, we, we set aside Mondays and Fridays in our business just for, you know, quiet work, no calls, you know, figuring out, you know, that kind of stuff. We set aside Tuesdays for a lot of team things. And, um, you know, we have different days where, where we focus on our different programs, but, um, hearing how tightly she has to compartmentalize her time because of kids, because of all of that uh, is helpful. I think in thinking through, okay, I got to batch better, or I've got to you know, be more deliberate when I sit down at my desk to actually do something that it's getting done. And I'm not, I'm not getting swallowed up in my inbox or something else. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes hearing other people, how other people do things can be, um, can maybe feel a little bit like, oh, you know, I'm doing this wrong. But I think when I'm able to sort of look at it as an experiment and just see what works and what doesn't, it's, it's, it just gives me permission to try it on. You know, it's not, it's not anything that has to be set in stone. There's no right way, like you said. And maybe you find something that works and you stick with it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we want to thank Jennifer Dwan Foltz for joining us on the podcast to talk about her business, creating courses, you know, some of the mistakes that course creators have made, mindset, and so much more. If you like what you've heard, you can check out Jennifer at jenniferdwanfoltz.com. Uh, let me spell that because just in case there's any questions, J-E-N-N-E-F-E-R-D-U-A-N-N-F-U-L-T-Z.com. Or it may even be easier just to find her at chiefexecutiveauntie.com. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or even better, find somebody that you can share the episode with. Thanks for listening. And I want to thank Christy. Thank you for joining me to uh, have a little chat through this episode. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And you know, if you ever want to kick Kira to the curb, call me. You're, you're next in line. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see everybody next week.